want to begin tonight with a very solemn sentence. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I wonder if you believe that. Warning actually comes from the Bible. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a very serious warning. It's hard to imagine a more serious warning. But what might surprise you is that that warning in the Bible is directed to Christians. Believers in the Lord Jesus. You can find it in Hebrews chapter 10. It's written to Christian believers, Christian believers who were straying from the truth. The warning they needed to hear, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear that same warning here in Evening Church. We need to be reminded of the seriousness of our calling to be disciples of Christ Jesus. We need to be reminded of the seriousness of our collective calling to be the church of Christ Jesus. For too often we play at these things, don't we? We trifle with these things. We are complacent about these things. And so we need a wake-up call. And really, you know, that's our passage tonight from James. It's a wake-up call. James writes to a group of Christians in crisis. Many of them were poor, but it wasn't their financial crisis that concerned James. It was their spiritual crisis that prompted him to write the letter. These were Christians, you see, who were selling God out. These were Christians who were being polluted by the world, by the value system of the world. And so really the whole letter of James is a serious call to repentance. It's a serious call to take seriously what it is to be a disciple of Christ Jesus, what it is to be the church of Christ Jesus. And in many ways, you know, tonight our passage is really the high point of James' call. It's really the high point of the letter. But of course, it's not merely a call to them back there and then, the first readers of James, comes tonight as a call to us as well. For we must examine each one of us, our hearts, with great care and great humility so as to test our loyalties and our devotions. For it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So as we come to this serious scripture, we need to pray, don't we, to our Lord and ask for humility and insight and courage and repentance and grace. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that in your word you deal with us seriously and with solemnity. And Father, we ask for your help in uh, hearing you well tonight. We come to you, Father, as people too often corrupted and polluted by our world. We come to you, Father, as a church family in great danger of being polluted by our world. Father, we come to you as people who too often we play at being disciples of Jesus. And we need your correction, Father. We need your warning. 
We need your word. And so, Father, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's point one in your outline, and let's have a look at verse 13 of chapter 3 of James. James begins with a question, really. Who is, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James writes to these Christians in crisis, and it's wisdom that he wants. He's not talking about intelligence. He's talking about humility. In the same way that true faith shows itself in obedience, James chapter 2, true wisdom reveals itself in the humble life, in the meek life. And really, if you step back from this passage and thought about the Bible as a whole, you'd see that makes sense. The Bible tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Think about these things in, in growth groups, aren't we, with Ecclesiastes? Uh, wisdom is to recognize our place before the Lord, to surrender to the Lord and to the Lord's purposes. That's the beginning of wisdom. And of course, that's humility. That's meekness. And that is what James demands of the Christians that he is writing to. Brothers and sisters, who are the wise ones among us? Who are those who show understanding? It's got nothing to do with what you got in the HSC. It's got nothing to do with that university degree you had to have or whatever it is, the qualification you needed to get the job that you're doing now. Wisdom, understanding, they have everything to do with humility and meekness. And where do we see humility? Where do we see meekness? Well, in our relationships. You can't really tell, can you, if a person is humble until you see the way they relate to another person. That's where meekness is demonstrated. And our wisdom will be demonstrated by our actions towards one another in this church family. In what James says there in verse 13, by deeds done in humility. That's the test. And so James goes on uh, later down in verse 17 to describe this true wisdom shown in deeds of humility. So let's have a look at it together. Verse 17. James says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Just take a moment to read that list again uh, for yourself. It's a wonderful list, don't you think? I mean, wouldn't it be great to be in a part of a church family like that? Don't you reckon? According to the Apostle James, verse 17 describes the spiritual church. Describes the church that is shaped and governed by the wisdom of heaven. And so do you want Evening Church to be a spiritual church, a wise church? Here's what you need to be aiming at in your prayers and in your actions. So we need to have a close look, don't we? Close look at verse 17. We can see there, first, uh, wisdom is characterized first and foremost by purity. In other words, a lack of contamination by the world and its values. The wise church bears the likeness of her saviour, and not the likeness of the world that she's been saved out of. It's exactly what James wrote back in chapter 1. 
He wrote there in chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And in many ways, you know, the rest of James' list here in verse 17 is a description of the purity, the unpolutedness that he has in mind. And so we keep reading and we, and we discover that we must be peace-loving people. In other words, our relationships in this church family must be harmonious. They must be free from conflict. They must be free from disputes. That's not to say that we can never disagree. But we must disagree in a peaceable way. Not in a way that promotes division or fighting, but in a way that promotes unity and peace. You see, there is such a thing as godly disagreements. We're not to be afraid of disagreeing with one another. That would be naive and unhelpful, really. But we are to be afraid of godly, sorry, ungodly disagreement. Because we are to love peace. And so, of course, as we keep reading, we discover, therefore, we must be considerate, gentle, patient with each other. In fact, we ought to be, James says, submissive. Interestingly, the word James uses there in verse 17 is not the normal Bible word for submission. That's a big Bible word, isn't it, submission? But James uses a different word from everywhere else in the Bible. And the word that James chose means being able to be persuaded. In other words, being submissive, particularly within disagreements or discussion. See, a very significant characteristic of wisdom is teachability. Humility about what you know and what you don't know. Because there are some people, aren't aren't there, who refuse to even consider the possibility that that what they think about a particular topic might be wrong. Refuse to even consider the possibility. And sadly, you know, you see that so often in Christian circles over doctrines especially over less important doctrines like baptism or healing or gifts of the spirit or church government. James says that the mark of the wise person, the mark of the truly spiritual person is submissiveness, humility, a willingness, you see, to be shown from the scriptures that there is a better way to understand something. The mark of the fool The mark of the unspiritual person is arrogance, a refusal to even consider another possibility. This is the person who, when they are in conversation about such things, they talk more than they listen. They talk at people rather than with people. And it comes across as confidence, but in fact it is great folly and it is spiritual immaturity. See, are you the wise submissive person or are you the foolish arrogant person james says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is open to persuasion it's submissive it's humble and he says verse 17 still it's also full of mercy and good fruit and that of course taps into one of james big themes doesn't it Back in chapter 2, remember, James took great pains to teach that genuine faith expresses itself in love, in mercy, in generosity. Deeds done in humility, in other words. These are the good fruits, you see, of heavenly wisdom. 
mercy to fellow believers. Whereas he goes on to say impartiality and sincerity. See, the mature, spiritual person, the wise person, they won't be swayed by the wealth of the person in front of them, by the dress of the person in front of them. They'll be impartial. They won't show shallow favoritism. They'll be sincere. They will show mercy in the same way that mercy has been shown to them. The wise, spiritual person will pursue peace. Verse 18, James returns to the idea of peace. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. You see, brothers and sisters, Evening Church is to be a church made up of peacemakers. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus who seek peace, who sow in peace, so that among us as a church family there might be a harvest of righteousness. In other words, a harvest of lives pleasing and honouring to the Lord. And according to the Apostle James, that's the truly spiritual church. That's the church shaped and governed by the wisdom of heaven. And that's what we ought to be aiming at in our prayers for evening church and our behaviour within evening church as members of the church family. People should be able to come to our church family and be a part of our church family, not just on Sunday nights, okay, at any time. And they should say, there is a group of people that is characterised by righteousness and peace and consideration and humility and submissiveness and mercy. But you know what? That, I don't think that's a picture that our world would value very highly. Where's the personal advancement? Where's the personal gain? Hang on, you've got to be able to, to defend your personal rights. See, I don't think these verses would rate, would rate very well in our world, but they ought to rate well with us. For we who belong to Jesus, we have the spirit of Jesus. And these things, these virtues that James describes, they remind us of Jesus, don't they? They remind us of Jesus and they ought to resonate with his spirit within us. These, as we read them, they are beautiful, desirable things to us. But of course, you know, they are utterly unattainable by us on our own. We have no capacity within ourselves for mercy. We have no capacity within ourselves for impartiality, for submissiveness, for sincerity. We can't find these things in ourselves on our own. And that, of course, is the wonder of the grace of God. For these, these very things that God demands, they come from him. Do you see it there in verse 17? They are the wisdom that come from heaven. They are the very fruit of the Spirit at work within us. And see, that's why we can read verse 17 and verse 18. We can read those verses with comfort and confidence because they are attainable through the Spirit of Christ. Evening church can be this church. If you belong to Jesus, then you have his Spirit. And even you can be part of a spiritually wise, heavenly church. And so we can be comforted and confident. But brothers and sisters, we dare not be complacent. We dare not simply assume these things will be true of us without obedience. Because the wisdom that produces such fruit must be sought. If you've got a really good memory, you'll be thinking, well, hang on, back in chapter 1 and verse 5... 
James commanded us, didn't he, that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. And ask in faith, without doubting, we should ask single-mindedly. And so you see, we can be confident of these things, but we must not be complacent about these things. And you know, that would seem to be precisely the error of James' first readers back there and then. Because you see, they were not characterised by heavenly wisdom. Instead, they were characterised by earthly wisdom. What James describes as devilish wisdom. And it's that error, really, that drives... James' serious call for repentance. So point two, and come with me to verse 14. Back to verse 14 of chapter 3, where James describes this other so-called wisdom. Let me read verse 14. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth, Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Immediately, you know, you should read verses 14, 15 and 16 and think they are the exact opposite of verse 17 and 18. And whereas verses 17 and 18 remind you of Jesus, verses 14, 15 and 16 remind us of the world of everything that Jesus was not, that everything Jesus came to oppose and rescue from. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, seeking only what's best for you and hating it when others do better than you. These are the marks, you see, of earthly, devilish wisdom. No humility, no submissiveness, no consideration, no mercy. And so, of course, where heavenly wisdom leads to peace... Devilish wisdom leads to disorder, James says, and every evil practice. Was this just a hypothetical warning that James was was offering here? Not at all. This was a description of exactly what was infecting James' readers. They claimed to be wise, you see. They boasted of their wisdom, but their wisdom was that of the earth, was that of the devil. Their wisdom did not express itself in humility and good works. It was proud. It expressed itself instead in bitterness and envy and selfish ambition. And so we turn and look into chapter 4 and verse 1 and you can see James' description of them. Chapter 4 and verse 1, this is where the chapter divisions and little headings get in the way, don't they? It's the same deal. Chapter 4, verse 1, have a look at it. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, the Christians that James was writing to, they were at war. That's the language James uses, although I don't think they were literally at war with each other. I don't think they were literally killing each other, although James uses the word for murder in verse 2. But they were at war in their fighting and their quarrelling. And James uses such extreme language so as to stress the seriousness and the horror of the tragedy of what was occurring. Verse 2, you want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. See, there is the church corrupted by earthly, unspiritual, devilish wisdom. No peace. There was disputing and selfish ambition and bitter envy and no mercy. People in this sort of church never speak about us. They only ever speak about me. 
People in a church like this are determined to get their own way and to never give way. People in a church like this have no interest in serving but only in being served. People in this sort of church, they have no interest in those in need. Those people in need are just passed over. They're ignored. People in this church, they use their words in warfare. Like we saw last time at the beginning of chapter 3, they cursed one another. Or if you glance down to verse 11, you see they slandered one another. They spoke against one another. The tongue, remember, that is set on fire by hell was corrupting them as they gave themselves to devilish wisdom. They were being driven by their passions, by their desires. And when the desires were thwarted, they attacked. They were in it to get things out of it. And in particular, you know, they pursued material gain, wealth. Even their prayers were shaped by greed. See verse 3? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, these Christians, they weren't interested in looking after orphans and widows in their distress. They weren't interested in being generous to their brothers and sisters. They were greedy. And even their prayers to the Lord were shaped by their greed. They just wanted stuff so they could spend to feed their pleasures. It's a disgusting situation. James is fired up rightly. It's a tragic situation. But you know what's even more tragic? James wasn't describing a one-off here. We, We can't read this description as merely, gee, that's historically interesting that a church might have been like that 2,000 years ago. Tragically, appallingly, This description that James writes here has been able to be applied to countless other churches down through time. And it can still be applied even today. And you know what? We would be very foolish indeed if we think that this could never be evening church. That would be foolish, arrogant complacency. For there are symptoms of this behavior throughout our church family, throughout each one of us. There are people within our church family who are stingy, and greedy, and lack mercy. There are people within our church family who are careless and unloving with their words. There are people within our church family who are persistent grumblers. Brothers and sisters, all of us are prone to selfish ambition and bitter envy of one another and greed and coveting. And you see, each and every one of us is faced with the choice. Here it is, the choice to either settle for devilish wisdom or pursue heavenly wisdom. And you know what? The consequences of our decision will be felt throughout the church family. See, there are people in our church family, even tonight, who feel they are not getting what they deserve. Why can others have so much money and I have so little? Why are they married and I'm not? Why are they well and I'm not? There are people in our church family right now who who are feeling that they have been treated badly by someone else in this church family. Maybe you've been slighted by someone. You've been spoken to badly. You've been disregarded. You've not been invited. You've been passed over. There are people in our church family right now who are in dispute with another in our church family. They've had a disagreement. Perhaps it's an ongoing disagreement. Maybe it's over something big, maybe it's over something small. 
But brothers and sisters, let's face it, these are the battles that go on within us and among us all the time. And how we deal with them, you see, how we deal with them will be determined by our choice. Will we choose to settle for devilish wisdom or will instead we pursue heavenly wisdom? And the consequences of our choices will be felt throughout the church family. These things do not happen in isolation. See, folks, these are the dangers that James is addressing, and they are real dangers. Real dangers back there and then, and real dangers here and now. And it is impossible, impossible to exaggerate how serious these dangers are. In fact, you know what? The seriousness of these dangers is seen with stark clarity in what we read next. Verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You know, adultery within a human marriage is a horrible evil. Adultery is ultimate treachery, ultimate betrayal. It's a painful horror that pierces the very heart and soul of those who are involved in it. And the road back from adultery is long and painful and stained with tears and often unsuccessful. And brothers and sisters, we must work very hard and prayerfully at keeping our marriage beds pure and we must flee temptation. But you know what? The Bible warns of another adultery that is even more evil and more destructive than that between married partners. It's the infidelity, the unfaithfulness, the disloyalty of the people of God towards their Saviour Lord. And that is the ultimate evil. That is the ultimate act of betrayal. That is the ultimate act of disloyalty. And that is precisely James' charge against the Christians he was writing to. You adulterous people. What an awful accusation. What a terrible charge. But brothers and sisters, we need to realise and understand that there are just two paths. Friendship with the world or friendship with God. Settling for earthly wisdom or pursuing heavenly wisdom. Just two paths. But they are, here's the thing, they are exclusive paths. There is no middle ground It is impossible to walk down both paths at the same time. You cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. You can't have mixed loyalties like that. That is the foolish sin of double-mindedness that James repeatedly attacks throughout this letter. To choose, you see, to choose friendship with the world is to choose hatred toward God. It's to betray the God who saved you. You see... To be greedy and not to be merciful is to hate God. For a Christian to be selfishly ambitious and not humble is to hate God. For the Christian to settle for bitter envy rather than loving consideration is to hate God. The Christian who prefers fighting and arguing to submission hates God. 
There are two paths, just two, and they are impossible to walk down at the same time. In the same way that fresh water cannot flow from a salt spring, remember? A friend of God cannot be a friend of the world. And for a Christian person to settle for earthly wisdom rather than pursue heavenly wisdom is adultery. It is spiritual adultery against the Lord God himself. And friends, you know what? The Lord God will not stand for it. He is a jealous husband. James reminds us of that in verse 5. God jealously longs for the people who are his. And that again is a big theme throughout the scriptures. For example, back in Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34, we read this warning. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. The Lord God will not tolerate rivals. His very name is jealousy, holy jealousy. He will not tolerate his people giving their loyalty to someone or something other than him, less worthy than him. Why should he? I mean, what a disgrace. What dishonor. That mere creatures like us might turn our back on the holy Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, the judge of all, the one who redeems his people. That we might carelessly give our hearts to someone else and think God will be okay with that. That is a disgrace. And brothers and sisters, hear the warning. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. And James rightly burns with anger against the adultery of these Christians. And tonight we should tremble before this word. We should tremble before the Holy Lord as we consider our own selfish ambition, our own bitter envy, our own lack of mercy, our own foolish arrogance. We should tremble because our Lord is a consuming fire. We cannot play at these things, you see. We cannot trifle with these things. We must face squarely how serious, how serious a thing it is to be a disciple of Christ Jesus. How serious a thing it is to be the church of Christ Jesus. You can't play at these things. See, how could there possibly be a path back from spiritual adultery? How could anyone spurn the Holy Lord? and escape judgment and condemnation. We need to face those questions. We need to ponder them. We need to feel the weight of them or else we'll completely miss the breathtaking wonder of what James writes next. See, James is in full flow, righteous warning and anger and rebuke, and yet the flow really is arrested by six simple, beautiful words. And look at them in verse 6 and and savour them, won't you? Chapter 4, verse 6, James says, But he gives us more grace he gives us more grace that's breathtaking isn't it to adulterous people to rebellious people to treacherous people the lord gives more grace not to the proud notice god opposes the proud who think they can just do it all on their own But to the humble, to the meek, the Lord gives more grace. To those who would come to him on bended knee with sorrowful hearts, to those who would confess their foolish arrogance, to those who would confess their false wisdom, 
to those who would confess their bitter envy, their selfish ambition, their greed, their coveting, to those who would come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm behaving terribly in my church family. To those, the Lord promises grace, not judgment, but grace, not condemnation, but mercy, not hatred, but love. Brothers and sisters, is that not astonishing? Yes, it's wonderful. The Lord who loved us when we were his enemies. The Lord who prayed for the forgiveness of those who were nailing him to the cross. The Lord who willingly bore the awful consequences of my sin, the holy wrath. That Lord gives grace to the humble. It's a wonderful truth. And so James, you see, he calls on his readers to repent and instead to come in humility to our merciful Heavenly Father. And brothers and sisters, the Father calls even us tonight. Calls even us tonight. And listen, please, as I read this gracious word of God to us from verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, brothers and sisters, there is the, there is the path from earthly wisdom to heavenly wisdom. It's a path of grace. It's a path that is open to all those of us who would cast aside our pride and be humble. And our Heavenly Father would say to each one of us tonight, draw near to me. Repent of your foolishness. Grieve your sin. Grieve your playing with being a disciple of Jesus. Grieve your pride. Grieve your arrogance. Grieve your lovelessness. Grieve the bitterness that you feel towards someone else in this church family. Grieve the feelings of hurt. Grieve that selfish ambition. Grieve our sin. Our Father would say to us tonight, leave behind earthly wisdom that cannot save you and will lead only to destruction. And our Heavenly Father says to us tonight, humble yourself before me that I might lift you up. That's great, isn't it? That he might lift us up. It's a sense in which we humble ourselves before him. But as his precious child, he lifts us up. We make ourselves low. He lifts us up. See, folks, these are the things we've got to ponder carefully and prayerfully this week, don't we? We should be reading these verses every day this week. Because, you know, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it is, it is a profoundly wonderful thing to have him draw near to you and to lift you up in his arms of grace. So submit to God. 
draw near to God. Humble yourself before him. And he will lift you up. How about we pray? I'm going to use the words of verses 7 to 10 to uh, pray. Then I'm going to leave a pause. And perhaps you might like to add your prayers just yourself to your heavenly father. And then I'll say amen. So let's pray. Let's draw near to God. Heavenly Father, we beg your mercy and we ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to you. Father, give us the strength to resist the devil and thank you that he will flee from us in the name of Jesus. Father, help us to come near to you And we are so grateful that you will come near to us. Father, we want to wash our hands of our sin. We want to purify our hearts, so often polluted by our worlds. We want to be single-minded, Father, not double-minded. We want to give up the foolish, stupid thing of trying to be friends with the world and friends with you. Father, we want to be single-minded in our devotion and our loyalty to you and to your Son. Father, help us to grieve and mourn and wail our sin. If we are feeling joy foolishly, Father, when we ought to be mourning, make us mourn, please. Convict us of our sin. Humble us before you, Father. But we might ask, please, that might you lift us up and restore us to yourself. And hear our prayers now, Father, as we offer them individually. Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.